0: ghost gear begets more ghost gear. Right
1: away we were involving fishermen in what are the big problems and what do you need answers to.
0: Harvesters came to us and said like look we're we're having a problem we're losing we're losing too much of our gear. Welcome to our Halloween episode
2: of Coastal Connections Stories from the Atlantic a podcast brought to you by Coastal Roots Radio. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, and activists interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. Ooh, ooh, something is creeping in our ocean. Marine life is being caught by mysterious floating weapons. And fishers are being haunted by gear and ripped lines that have disappeared over the past century. Well, actually, we're talking about ghost gear. Welcome to episode two of our mini-series on plastic in the ocean. Our last episode tackled the issue of single-use plastics, a major source of ocean pollution that comes from various human activities on land. Now, we are moving right into the water, where over time, pollution and marine debris have grown in connection with the development of aquaculture and large-scale fishing activities. I'm Dr. Sandra Eager, and thank you for joining us as we continue to understand the causes of this global problem by sharing stories and solutions from individuals working in and on the water. Our goal in this episode is to help distinguish ghost gear from other marine debris, to understand the environmental and social impacts, and to share stories from southwestern New Brunswick, a region that has been working to research and remove ghost gear for decades. To help us tell this story, we've invited Matt Abbott to join us as a co-host.
3: I'm really excited to be here. My name's Matt Abbott. I'm the Fundy Baykeeper with the Conservation Council of New Brunswick. There's been a lot of activity on marine debris in southwest New Brunswick. I've been here just over 10 years now, and it's something I've always worked on and that has always been an issue for Fundy Baykeeper. And it's because it's apparent. It's out there. The community's concerned about it. The community sees the impacts. So one of the concerns when we talk about ghost gear is that we have a particular kind of debris that's catching marine animals and sometimes can do that in perpetuity.
2: Matt has worked with both of the guests we'll hear from today, and he is just the person who can explain all the various types of marine waste, debris, and ghost gear. And what's the difference? Let's get him to give us a quick introduction and overview to start us off.
3: Here in the Outer Bay of Fundy, we see lots of different kinds of debris, right? We see leftovers from people being on the shoreline or what comes out of our waste streams like plastic bottles and food waste. But we also see a lot of industrial debris. We typically see a lot of rope. In some of my work, I talk about large submerged debris to distinguish it from the plastic bottles and things that are floating around. We're talking about large items that are sunken or on the sea bottom. So we have leftovers from historic dumping. I've heard of people pulling up parts of trucks. We, of course, have leftovers from activities on the water like aquaculture and fishing. And where we get into ghost gear, in my mind, is when we have gear that continues to fish after it's been lost. In my region, one of the concerns is with lobster traps. So if lobster traps are lost for a host of reasons, it doesn't stop fishing. So lobster and other animals will continue to climb into that baited trap. They'll get stuck in there. No one pulls it up. So once they die, they become bait for the next thing. And another thing with ghost gear, especially with net and rope to some extent as well, which can entangle some of the larger animals and that over time, marine plants will grow on it. It'll sink to the bottom. But as those rot away, it will float again. So we have some kinds of marine debris and ghost gear that sink and float over time and make them very hard to find.
2: While fishing gear is instrumental for the productivity of harvesters, it can also cause unintended harm to animals and habitat. And many organizations are now sharing shocking photos of charismatic megafauna that have been entangled or even ingested it. This includes large fish such as sharks, swordfish and tuna, and cute and cuddly mammals like whales, dolphins, seals and turtles.
3: Fishing isn't new in this region, but this problem is relatively new because when we were using hemp rope and wooden traps, Stuff would degrade naturally over time, but as we move into more modern materials, steel traps, and plastic-based ropes, then we have stuff that essentially never goes away. As you'll hear from our guests today, we've been really fortunate to work in a region where we've had both fishing associations and academics work together with us and others to look at some of the debris from the fishing industry and have really come up with some solutions locally, which are really globally leading solutions and ways to deal with some of the waste that comes from our marine activities.
2: Let's kick off this episode with Melanie. As a reminder, Dr. Melanie Weiber is a professor emerita in anthropology at the University of New Brunswick. She has had a long career of working closely with fishers and communities to better understand and address some of the challenges that they face, one of them being marine debris.
1: I had a project that was asking questions about risk assessment and you know, what risks were fishermen, particularly in this case, lobster fishermen concerned about in terms of their fishery. And one of the things they were concerned about was this recruitment question and what might be harming fish stocks, particularly focusing on aquacultures. So we built a project using fishermen knowledge, using fishermen's boats, using fishermen's traps, We put biology students on the boats with the fishermen, and we began to sample lobster around aquaculture sites.
3: It's really great to hear from Dr. Melanie Weiber. She's been a real inspiration for me and really brought some social science thinking and academic tools to us, Uh, really helped us figure out how to meet with people, her and some of her students, how to gather people together to really serve the whole community as we move this file forward and to do it in a way that built momentum, not uh, discouraged people.
1: So we built this round table, uh, pulling in ENGOs, fishermen, aquaculture, federal and provincial regulators, and even groups like solid waste disposal people, you know, from the Solid Waste Commission. And we brought them all around the table and we said look you know what can we do about marine debris you know what resources do we have what are the problem areas what can we do about it and before we actually sat down with the group we went out to the fishermen with arcgis and we said take us to where there are marine debris issues and we mapped all the marine debris problems that they identified in arcgis and then we built um, a really easy, accessible way to sit with the Roundtable group and look at those maps.
3: When I arrived, um, there wasn't necessarily a great deal of structure around dealing with marine debris. Without That's, of course, Fundy North had already started their ghost gear work, but in terms of collaborative infrastructure across sectors, there wasn't a great deal going on.
1: To click on each site, where there was marine debris and have a little box come up that said, this is aquaculture debris, this is fishing debris, you know, and to talk about the sort of challenges of getting to it and whether it was mobile, whether it was snagged on something. All this kind of information could come up at a pop, right? A a click on on a mouse. One of the things that happened was immediately people started trying to say they weren't responsible for it, right? It wasn't their debris. And so it was easy to click on these and say, well, here's pictures, right? Here's pictures of the debris that we took or that fishermen took when they saw it. It was really interesting. They, they tried a number of ways, people around the table. Oh, that must've come from Maine. But as we worked together through a number of these meetings, you could see them adjusting to the fact that It's all well-documented now. We can't brush it under the rug anymore. So what are we going to say about it? What are we going to do about it?
2: Melanie points out a big question. Who's responsible for cleaning up marine debris? It may be hard for a company, a fisher, or civil society members to accept responsibility. This collaborative process that they created led to a transparent space where groups could build trust and relationships as they navigated this challenging issue together.
1: And There were sort of these successive steps of saying well why can't we just go in there with one of your barges with a lift on it and get that stuff out of there? And then we began to find stuff out together. Well who owns that stuff? Is it just free for all? Can we just all go out and get it? Because what if I wanted to use it to build something on land, right? Because some of this stuff actually had recyclable probabilities. And then we find out as soon as you land something you're responsible for getting it to a disposal site. And if it has any marine organisms on it, there's these rules and regulations about the disposal of that. Like all of this stuff started coming out that no single person around the table had total access to all that information. We were learning from each other as we went along. And the learning curve was steep. You know, there was a whole bunch of learning about what exactly do the leases say about responsibility? If there's a storm and debris breaks away from your lease, are you responsible? And if you've gone bankrupt, you know, what responsibility do you have for all the stuff that's sitting on your lease? If you have debtors, can we just go out and pull all that stuff off your lease when they think it might be used to, to reduce, you know, the debt that you owe? So, like, the learning process
3: was huge. We've heard Dr. Weiber refer to leases in the marine and coastal environment. And what she's speaking to primarily is aquaculture site leases. Uh, Leases are a system where aquaculture operators apply to the province for a lease, basically for a given square footage of sea bottom, where they can set up their operation. This, of course, has to happen for weirs and other infrastructure in the water as well. The province in New Brunswick manages the sea bottom in close coastal areas. It's confusing because the lease is for the sea bottom, but of course, the federal government has quite a bit of jurisdiction over the water column itself. Companies are getting leases from the province and have to deal with provincial regulation around their leases. So it's quite a complex system and it tends to create a lot of challenges. Now on the marine debris front, there is very little legislation that allows for accountability. We've been pushing for greater requirements around gear marking. Unless you saw it break off, there's usually nothing that can be done about that.
2: Were you aware of all the different types of fishers? Melanie breaks down the differences for us to ensure that we realize fishers can be recognized differently under commercial licensing policy based on vessel size and license type.
1: Three uh, industry branches in Canadian fisheries one is called the inshore. It's generally smaller boats taking day trips from local harbors uh, under 45 feet, if, I'm, if I can remember that correctly. Uh, then there's the midshore fleet, which mostly is, in, is restricted to the exclusive economic zone, the EEZ that was established for Canada. So they longer trips, they might be local to much larger ports because they're drawing their crew from a larger area. And they're often not family-run, the way the small inshore fishery is. And then there's offshore fisheries, which are corporate enterprises. Could be a corporation from anywhere in the world, using crew from anywhere in the world, and fishing wherever they can get away with fishing. So those are three quite different sectors, and we can't think of them in the same way at all. So now there's an NGO in New Brunswick that's responsible for maintaining that ArcGIS mapping of marine debris and there's a website and there's a an email where you can can send pictures or identify sites that are a problem.
2: That ENGO managing the database now is none other than the CCNB, the group that Matt works for. He takes a moment here to reflect on some of their achievements over the years.
3: Where we heard from uh, Dr. Weiber about the um, Marine Debris Roundtable, we met with fishing groups identified where the debris was, and then used a collaborative process to organize cleanups. Um, A group that no longer exists, the uh, Southwest New Brunswick Marine Advisory Committee identified uh, marine debris as an issue and set up a working group on that. From that process came the Marine Debris Strategic Advisory Committee, or the MUDSAC, as we are very fond of calling it, instead of the MDSAC. And it's about bringing government, industry, environmental groups, Indigenous communities all into the same room where we share uh, the work we're doing and identify priorities on marine debris.
1: I I have to say, without StoryMap, without GIS, um, and ArcGIS, I don't know that we would have been able to convince people, first of all, what was out there and who was responsible for it and how you couldn't dodge the issue anymore. It was also well documented. It sure
2: sounds like lots of lessons have been learned as approaches to marine debris and ghost gear evolved in southwestern New Brunswick. Now let's welcome back Lillian to hear why
0: fishers have been behind the push to research and retrieve ghost gear. My name is Lillian Mitchell. I'm the executive director of Fundy North Fishermen's Association, and we are a not-for-profit organization that represents uh, like small-scale commercial inshore harvesters. Fundy North has been working on ghost gear as one of our main environmental issues that we're interested in tackling for mm, almost 20 years now. You know, submerged vessels and ghost gear and just like beach cleanup kind of That's kind of like the full gamut of like marine waste as I see it. Consider this. The lobster fishery in Atlantic Canada is
2: worth over $2 billion. So any lost gear could mean a lost catch. We heard a bit from Matt on ways we can end up with ghost gear. Let's hear more on this from a fisher's perspective.
0: It was, I would say, the definition of like a community initiative. The genesis was like an economic concern originally, I would say. We had harvesters coming into the office and saying, look, we have active gear, gear that we're currently fishing, that is getting snagged up on this old debris that's on bottom. So for people who aren't familiar with fishing, you know, not all fishing bottom is ubiquitous. So you're gonna have areas that have like higher concentrations of gear and not all the bottom type is gonna be the same. And in our fishing area, it's areas that tend to be like really rocky and have ledges and kind of like challenging topography that lobsters really like to be around. And that's where you tend to fish a lot. Also in our area of the Bay of Fundy, there's huge amount of tide and current. So what we find happens is when gear is lost, it tends to like aggregate in areas where people continue to actively fish. So you've got active lines, you're actively engaging in your fishery, and when you try and retrieve your gear, it gets caught up on this old stuff. And that leads to, you know, your line breaking. And then not only has there been gear over time that's lost on the bottom and polluting the ocean, but it's also kind of contributing to more of itself. I always say ghost gear begets more ghost gear, um, because once you have it in the water, uh, it's so much easier to lose an active line.
2: Not only does the Bay of Fundy have some marvelous topography, which makes it great for lobsters, but challenging for gear, it also has some of the biggest tides in the world, up to 16 meters. Of course, with big
0: tides come strong currents, posing yet another challenge for fishers. Now, that's not the only way ghost gear can happen, like, severe weather events can contribute to ghost gear, but there's also uh, laying lines on top of other fishermen can contribute to ghost gear. And that tends to happen in areas where the fishing is really competitive. So like I said, not all bottom is ubiquitous. Uh, So if there's a really good lobster fishing area, there tends to be a lot of people around there. And if you're not communicating with the other people that you're fishing around, you can end up setting gear on top of each other. And then if your rope is chafing against someone else's rope, as you're hauling that up, the rope will sever or part, as we say, and then you lose your trap and that contributes to ghost gear. So that's one way. Another way is just other users of the ocean space. So you'll have, you know, your rope that's sitting on the top with uh, the buoy. And if you've got a lot of other vessel traffic, that's not really you know, aware that lobster gear is in the area, they can run over that and their propellers will cut lines. And that's another way that you get ghost gear.
2: Matt says that some lobster traps have built-in mechanisms in place so that over time, parts of the traps rust away, allowing some caught critters to escape. But nets and
0: line and plastic parts won't degrade. So how do we actually get those bits out of the water? Basically, our harvesters came to us and said like, look, we're, we're having a problem. We're losing We're losing too much of our gear. And it was really them that came up with the solution to develop a specialized grapnel unit, um, which is really kind of like a big rig that they can tie up on their scallop A-frame. They designed that specifically to try and target traps that were on the bottom. And so since that initiative, we've seen a huge reduction in the amount of ghost gear that's in our lobster fishing area. We've had harvesters report back to us that they lose less gear now that you know the kind of historic ghost gear has been cleaned up and since then uh, we've kind of continued with our ghost gear work annually and we we have a protocol right now which is basically when people are out fishing and they interact with ghost gear that you know is impeding their fishing operations they'll call us and we keep a list of hot spots as we call them or problem areas And then every year we've got a team of, you know, 10 or so harvesters who we have on our ghost gear retrieval permit that, you know, once the time of year rolls around where we have time to go do retrievals, I basically work with the harvesters where they had problems this year. So we're going to target those areas for cleanup. And that's really how it works now. I won't say we have it down to, you know, a perfect science or anything like that, but certainly we've come a long way to addressing the issue in our area.
2: Success from the ghost gear retrieval program shows the positive difference made by fishers themselves. Fundy North continues with annual retrieval projects and now has their own protocol that they've even been able to share with others. So now that we've located and retrieved lost and discarded gear, how do we dispose of it? The last thing we want is for it to end up back in the ocean or piled up in a landfill. Fortunately, the group in southwestern New Brunswick has already thought of this.
0: You know, areas where we're limited in what we can do, we've been able to partner with other organizations. Like, uh, you know, Fundy North always had um, a plan to address uh, the recycling of rope as an issue. You know, we, we wind up with old gear like traps and rope that we would like to see reused or repurposed in some way. And the Huntsman came up with a great idea. It was actually their marine debris coordinator at the time, I believe, came up with this idea for rope bins at every wharf. And those bins are regularly emptied of rope. And then that rope is taken to a recycling facility.
3: Uh, over the past several years, we worked with Fundy North to try and extend their work beyond Ghost Gear Recovery because they were doing incredible work. Where we heard from uh Dr. Weiber about the marine debris roundtable, we met with Fishing Group, identified where the debris was and then used a collaborative process to organize cleanups. And for me, it was also an important mechanism to hold the people generating the debris to account. By having aquaculture, government, ourselves, and others in the room, the rope recycling effort speaks to how the broad collaborations we're seeing in southwestern New Brunswick, Outer Bay of Fundy, have helped us try to solve the problem more holistically. Right, It's helped us move away from just blaming each other from who's generating the debris to make it easier for all of us to behave well.
0: As a staff of three, we didn't really have the ability to execute ourselves, but by sitting at that round table, uh, it's been another aspect of marine debris that we've been able to address more effectively now that we've sat down with other, with other partners.
2: Matt calls the issue of disposal Or, what to do with the debris and gear that you pull out of the water, a really sticky issue that's hard to solve. As you may remember, Sean and Stanine with Clean Harbors Initiative in episode four came to the same conclusion. I actually have an update on the net that drowned the Oracle whale. Do you remember Sean saying, If you've seen a man hang himself, you wouldn't bury him with noose around his neck, right? So he cut off the net that drowned the whale, and that net is on its way to a team of students and art professors at Grenfell Campus in Cornerbrook. They're collaborating to put together a permanent installment using the net that was hauled up by the CHI crew. Here's another creative solution that the Huntsman Marine Science Center came up with.
3: Out of that rope recycling effort, we've seen fundraising activities and other things around the creation of rope mats. Huntsman even hosts with support from Fundy North evening events where people go and have a glass of wine and learn to make a rope mat and learn about marine debris in the process through through their own craft work. Finding those opportunities to make things better really does come through.
2: Initiatives that prevent marine debris and ghost gear are key. This reminds me of a link that Jackie, another one of our co-hosts, shared with me recently. There's a project in Newfoundland led by a conservation group called Intervale. They set up bins at wharfs for fishers to place their bait box liners in, to be recycled rather than risk ending up in the sea. My favorite thing about this podcast is the sharing of experiences and knowledge between different regions with similar interests and similar problems. Allowing others to access what you've learned, how you've designed and executed your solutions is critical to tackling
0: these complex issues across larger scales. I've done a few more things like this before where I've talked about the work and people have heard it and been interested. I've had other associations or fishermen from different areas say, hey, we have a similar problem. Like, how did you guys get started? That's the biggest thing, talking through with people, like, how to get off the ground. And because we've been through all that before, it's like anything. Talking to someone else who's already done what you're trying to do is fundamentally just very helpful. So uh, really, we've just been partnering with other in some cases, other associations, other harvester groups, like First Nations groups that have, you know, commercial harvesters that want to tackle this issue as well. And we act as kind of a, I don't know if you want to call it like a liaison, a person that you can ask questions to. And right now we're working with the Maritime Fishermen's Union. We We shared our grapnel design with them, and then they tested our grapnel design and then kind of modified it based on the tidal conditions and bottom conditions in their area. Depth is also another consideration, and gear type is another consideration. So we were able to explain to them why we designed our grapnels the way they are. We've got two different designs. Uh, One kind of targets single trap lines, and the other is meant to target snarls, so like bigger, like, algamations of gear that's tangled onto each other. So, you know, that was the kind of stuff that was useful to communicate directly with them and have a have a back and forth about, you know, how we arrived at our design and through their testing of that and working with their own harvesters, they're able to refine for something that, you know, is the best for the conditions that they work under. So that's an example of the back and forth that we have had with other areas that are trying to do the same thing.
2: As we've learned, Fundy North was one of the first in the region to start action on ghost gear research and retrieval. But now, we're seeing more widespread efforts. Lillian shares a great resource with us. For those who may be interested in
0: tackling this issue as well, you can find links to the manual in the show notes. The other way we've kind of been able to distribute that information is we we made a manual like a 30-page manual all about exactly how we came up with the idea to do ghost gear retrieval and how we executed it and how we designed the grapnels and all of the rest of that stuff and it's available online. It's been uh, a resource that I've even even when I haven't directly communicated with people about getting a ghost gear program somewhere else started I've seen reference to our manual and that makes us feel really good too because we know the information is getting used but i mean if you're interested in ghost gear you know at large there's the global ghost gear initiative they are an international organization but there's a lot of member groups from canada we actually have a very good like canada showing on <laughs> the members of the triple gi so there's definitely other ghost gear projects going on in the country with organizations that aren't even necessarily like fishing associations and and people doing it in totally different ways. The
2: Maliseet Nation Conservation Council and Kojo Diving in New Brunswick have organized ghost gear cleanups at decommissioned weir sites. Being in the inshore region, weir sites pose challenges for Fundy North's existing retrieval gear, but they're still able to help in another way.
0: Our association has the resources and information about you know who owns these properties whether those people would give us permission to dive at those places and so we've been able to collaborate with them you know lots of marine debris work happening out there and people have come up with some some great ideas before we wrap up
2: let's hear about entanglements with active gear a story that unfortunately continues to frequent atlantic media
3: we've seen the fishing industry engage on other work of course recently we've heard even uh, more dire population estimates of the north atlantic right whale we're at a low number for whales and that's really alarming and concerning um and we have seen the fishing industry as key partners in dealing with this so of course we've seen the fishing industry Deal with lost gear and old gear. So um, ghost gear on the bottom, much of which still has rope attached and which can entangle whales and other animals. But we also see changes in how people fish active gear. So I don't think of I think of ghost gear and active gear as separate. So active gear is gear that's fishing during a fishing season that fishers can find in the way they find things be that through uh, a buoy to the top which is the most traditional way but we've also seen experiments to look at rope on demand gear so gear that doesn't have rope coming to the top all the time that either uses timed release or some sort of sonar other system to release rope and buoys from gear on the sea bottom so that it doesn't entangle whales and we've also seen other measures like closures of fishing zones when endangered right whales are present or other things so this is hard on fishers right
2: endangered species like the north atlantic right whale are a sign of the critical point we're at for tackling this issue
3: really all of us have been part of The impacts on right whales, because it comes from fishing, but it also comes from shipping. I think we can see impacts from climate change and other things. But the fishing industry has really, in some ways, had to take uh, the brunt of the response to right whales. And I think in many cases, they've done it with a great deal of grace and a lot of hard work. And so I think we need to see those efforts continue. There may be improvements in different kind of gear, but I've definitely seen that folks are up to the task and are willing to put in the effort. And I will just add that um, this story is not a new one in the Bay of Fundy. We've seen greater right whale presence in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So I've seen more interaction with the snow crab fishing fleet, but it's been several decades that uh, people have been fishing with right whales in mind here in the Bay of Fundy, where right whales used to come in much larger numbers. Uh, experience of how to fish alongside the whales and I've been I've also been greatly encouraged to see how much collaboration there's been between fishing associations but also environmental groups and others so that the lessons learned in one place can be applied very quickly in the other place
2: Ghost Gear has brought diverse groups together on a common topic Today, we heard about various ongoing projects to prevent, research, locate, retrieve, and recycle marine waste, which includes debris and ghost gear. So how do we continue to build around these ideas of prevention? The projects today focus mainly on gear from the fishing and aquaculture industry, but anyone who lives, works, or plays on, in, or near the water can contribute to marine waste and ghost gear. This includes tourism and recreation to transport you can support initiatives that prevent ghost gear, and do your part to report it, remove it, and recycle it.
3: The last few years, we've seen a lot of discussion of that nationally and internationally, and I think it's really important. When I visit schools, especially high schools, students are very engaged around it and aware. And I do think, though, that we definitely um, for wide scale change, we need we need changes in our supply chain and changes in our legislative environment, because I, I do at times worry that a lot of. Pressure is being put on individuals to change things where the issues with debris really uh, are more systemic, right? If most of our products are wrapped in plastic and if we don't have good recycling options, then uh, what else do we expect?
2: All of our guests today emphasize the importance of collaboration and talking to local people with different perspectives in order to progress with complex issues. However, even with innovation around retrieval and alternative gear, there's still something missing and that's a gap in policy. Who is responsible? And for what exactly? What does someone do with a damaged boat or unwanted gear? Effective extended producer responsibility for gear would mean that all gear, rope, nets must have an end-of-life engagement plan. Some great examples of this are already happening in Nova Scotia, where they're making plastic wood out of recycled rope. Let's hear some final thoughts from Matt and our guests about the benefits they've seen in their area and why they think efforts have been so successful in southwestern New Brunswick. Melanie starts by reflecting on how Fundy North was among the first proactive efforts on Ghost Gear and also how the nation is finally catching up.
1: The Federal government initiated a big marine debris recovery process focusing on fisheries gear, and a lot of dollars were made available to do that. And I kind of smile to myself when I see this because there's all this hype around it, right? But Fundy North had been doing marine debris recovery 10 years ago using ENGO funding, particularly, they started in the St. John Harbor. And the round table that I was describing to you is another example. And they did novel things like um, using side span sonar to see if they could identify where the lobster traps were ending up that had been cut loose by the ferry. <laughs> the Digby, New Brunswick ferry had uh, entangled often with, with fishing gear and uh, a lot of that gear ended up on the harbor bottom. So that,
0: they were doing novel things a long time ago in terms of retrieving some of this marine debris. The best feedback that I get about the project is, you know, it's, it's nice to have, other organizations and people from away reach out to me and say, Hey, we love your project. Uh, it's really impressive what you've been doing, but I can say without a doubt that the, the best feedback to get is from fishermen who come into the office and say, I've seen real results, real impacts of us having cleaned this up because it's positively impacted my fishing operations. Um, and so really, I, if I was to sum up the benefit of our Ghost Gear program, it would be that.
3: There's times where it's been hard and there's times where it's been frustrating. But I will say that everyone has kept coming back to the table and we have seen real local improvement. So it's a reminder that good things come from continuing to show up. So why should you care? Let's hear some final thoughts from Matt. I like to eat seafood. One of my favorite things is when I'm meeting with fishermen and they slide me some scallops. So I I like seafood. I like that I live in a fishing community. And I like to have people I can work with to help make sure that fishing is as responsible and sustainable as possible. And I've noticed that throughout the marine environmental world, especially in Atlantic Canada... Um, My perspective is often shared, that we really see the value of locally owned and operated fishing, and we want to work with people to um, keep fishing as something that sustains our communities where we live as well. The issue of ghost gear and even more broadly marine debris in the ocean really does affect all of us, whether we're in land. I grew up hours and hours away from James Bay, actually, in Northern Ontario. That was the closest ocean, but it was a train or plane ride away. And even where I grew up, the impacts on the ocean should be a concern for us. If any of us like to eat seafood, certainly. Marine debris and ghost gear impacts the species we want to catch and eat. It impacts their ecosystem and it impacts the people who already do hard, dangerous work to catch that seafood for us. An ocean without large debris in it and without ghost gear is much safer for someone who's needing to put down fishing gear, interact with the sea bottom, often in very difficult weather conditions and everything else. No matter where we are in the world, the ocean is really important to us. The oceans, in many ways, are the lungs of the planet in terms of climate change, in terms of oxygen production. And so much of the biodiversity we rely on resides in the oceans. It matters to us wherever we are, whether we're seafood eaters or not. And certainly anyone who's visited coastal regions, it doesn't take long to realize that that interface between ocean and sea is really, really important. And it doesn't surprise me in the least that so many of our human communities are along the coastline or at the mouths of rivers where they meet the ocean. These are really dynamic places you can just feel their intrinsic value by being there. And you know, our our debris streams are, are a really significant impact on those systems.
2: Although ghost care has become a global issue, there isn't a cookie cutter solution. What we do know is that the place to start is with folks in our local communities, in particular, the fishing industry themselves, who are best equipped with the boats and expertise to deal with this issue. Thanks to our guests today, and to Matt for helping us share these stories. Remember, ghost gear isn't just affecting wildlife, it's affecting humans as well. Just like we learned in the last episode about single-use plastics, ghost gear is largely comprised of plastic materials which breaks down into tinier pieces. We will learn more about this next month in the third and last episode of our mini-series where we investigate microplastics in the ocean and find out how much we consume in our diets. To connect with people you've heard on this podcast, be sure to check out the show notes or get in touch with us on Twitter through Coastal Roots or Rural Resilience. The Coastal Connections podcast is a production of Coastal Roots Radio, produced in partnership with the University of Guelph and Grenfell Campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland. This Halloween, remember that there are ghosts in the dark places of our waters.